Welcome to The 43%. I'm Claudia Reuter. This show forgets about the leaning in or leaning out debate and talks to successful women about their path toward creating a life that includes both family and career. Our name is a nod to the fact that 43% of women leave the workforce when they have children. We all have our takes on why and what might be done to better support working mothers. But in this show, we explore a wide range of experiences and ideas. You know, I'd say the same thing for, for men too, but I think with women, it's even more challenging because we are brought up to believe that we have to be perfect. And so if we are not perfect, we then feel like we are not capable. And I think that's a big, huge mistake that we have to make sure we change in how we raise our daughters. That was today's guest, Linda Zecker. Linda is the CEO and founder of The Barkley Group and a board director at Hasbro. She was recently named to the 2018 Women's Inc. list of most influential board members. In previous roles, she has served as the CEO of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, a company she took public, a corporate vice president at Microsoft, and a senior vice president at Oracle, among many other notable positions. In our conversation, she shared her journey from geophysicist to CEO to the boardroom, and her own experiences as a working mom who also stepped away from the workforce at one point. In this conversation, she discussed the importance of confidence combined with a willingness to get things done and recounted some of her most interesting experiences of parenting while working with leaders on a global stage. The 43% is brought to you in part by Beta Brand. You know, I spend a lot of time sitting at my desk and on calls. Well, I would love to get to the gym every day. It's not always possible for me. On those super busy days, being able to get up and stretch can make a huge difference in my mood. That's why I'm so excited to let you know about Beta Brand and their dress pant yoga pants. I just received my first pair and I love them. Here's the thing, they're dressy looking enough to pass for traditional dress pants. No one will ever know you're wearing yoga pants, but they're just as comfy as yoga pants. So you can sit all day and feel like you can breathe, but they're also functional enough that when I do have a second, I can get up and stretch. It's amazing. The dress pant yoga pant is ultra comfy. It's wrinkle resistant and it has faux zippers, pockets, front buttons, and super cute belt loops. I personally love the bootcut style, but they have options for everyone. Skinny, cropped, multiple length options, and more. There's a variety of colors to choose from, and there's also seasonal color options. If you like to be comfy, sporty, and professional at the same time, you're just going to love Beta Brand. Visit betabrand.com forward slash percent to get 20% off your dress pant yoga pants today. That's B-E-T-A. B-R-A-N-D dot com forward slash P-E-R-C-E-N-T. You're going to love them, I promise. To kick off, would thank you, first of all, for making the time to do this. Do you mind just get introducing yourself and sharing a little bit about what your current day is like? Sure. My name is Linda Zecker, and I am currently the CEO of the Barclay Group, which is a um, boutique consulting firm that I founded. And I'm working primarily with 
uh, private equity firms and some companies that are going through digital transformations. So I spend a lot of my day on the phone or doing research or having calls with clients. I've recently been traveling a little bit. I've had meetings in New Orleans and and San Francisco and New York. So I feel like I'm sort of back into the swing um, with a new consulting firm. You've been in the news and you've run companies and you've worked for some big name companies over the years and really had a career that a lot of us would aspire to. Um, <laughs> do you mind taking me back to the beginning, say when you were first, um, you know, go, going out into the workforce and sure. what your expectations were and sort of what your path was to get to this point in your career? When I was going through college, I always thought that I would either be a teacher or I would go to law school. Those were kind of my two things that I thought about. And I ended up going into geology and earth science. And then I ended up with my first job as a geophysicist with Texas Instruments in Midland, Texas. Uh, I couldn't even tell you where Midland, Texas was at the time that I ended up working there. <laughs> but um, I was one of the first women that were in that field. In fact, one of the first conferences I went to was someplace in Canada, I think in Calgary, and there were 10,000 geologists and geophysicists there, and there were two women, and mm. all the rest were men. And my husband at the time was also a geophysicist. I remember when we went, I asked him to make sure he signed up for the spouse gift, because they were giving away a great purse, and I wanted the purse. Nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> Always priorities, right? Um, so I was with Texas Instruments, um, moved from Midland, they transferred me to Dallas, and then they transferred me to Denver. And you know, life has a lot of different changes in your course, so I ended up um, divorced and remarried and found myself in San Francisco where I went to work for Bank of America. And mm -hmm. I started out in Bank of America doing a sales job, which I had never done before in my entire life. But I, you know, I figured how hard can this be? You know, I can talk, so uh, I can obviously sell. And so I started uh, working in their business services division. And I was there for about a year and I was doing quite well when there was um, a female senior executive who I admired a great deal. And her name at the time was, um, well, her name now is Vivian Bantive, but it was Vivian Eversole at the time. And I took her out to lunch one day and I said, you know, I can do a lot more and I've got this background and I really think I could add a lot of value and I would like to do something different. And so she gave me the opportunity to take over the product management of the business services division, which was payroll systems and HR systems and financial systems and things like that. So I ended up doing that, working for her. And I then ended up running a part of their online services and was doing all of that when I was doing some consulting with Eastman Kodak, that was a large customer of the banks at the time, and they were looking at a client server architecture. Mm -hmm. So this is in like 1988, something like that. So at that time, I suggested that they talk to a gentleman by the name of Dave Duffield, and he had started Integral Systems. He had left Integral and started PeopleSoft, and he was building the first client server HR system. So they did look at PeopleSoft, they became PeopleSoft's first client, and they suggested to Dave that he hire me. So I ended up going wow. to PeopleSoft as employee number nine, and our first customer I brought to them, Eastman Kodak, and I ran sales uh, for um, PeopleSoft, and then I took over marketing, and then I ran both, and then I ended up running international and um, did that through our IPO. So we, when I started at PeopleSoft, we literally had about $500,000 in revenue. 
And when we IPO'd three years later, we were a little over 40 million. That's amazing. So it was a pretty major ride and very exciting and just so many things I learned. I mean, I, I made the first brochure myself. I mm-hmm. built the booth for our first um, uh, uh, offsite, you know, convention that we had gone to. And it was just basic things that you learn. You know, you had to answer your own phones, you wrote your own RFPs, you did your own demos. And just, you know, I learned a lot and it was a lot of fun. And, you know, obviously it was very, very successful, which gave me a lot of you know new opportunities. About that time that we were living in California, my son was in elementary school and getting ready to go to junior high. And I was not happy with the junior high selections Mm -hmm. uh, and options. And at the time, I thought we'd put him in private school, but we were, he'd been in private school, but we were too late to sign up for the private schools that I wanted him to go into for junior high and high school. And my family was on the East Coast. So I woke my husband up one night in the middle of the night and I said, you know, I can't live here anymore. I can't do the commute anymore. I don't want to be traveling. I was traveling all around the world. I was never home. Mm -hmm. Uh, My son had uh, reminded me that I was not there a lot, which had upset me a great deal. And in fact, he was, I was doing the laundry one day and his comment to me was, you know, mom, we don't do it that way. And I suddenly felt like I was losing my family and I wasn't part of it. Mm -hmm. And all the things that I wanted from my child were, you know, not being fulfilled. So my husband very graciously at like two o'clock in the morning, he got up and he went into the other room and he brought back the Atlas and a, a magic marker and he drew a line across the, the nation. He said, consider anything below the snow belt, handed me the map and went back to sleep. That <laughs> so, is awesome. <laughs> and he was, you know, he was uh, consulting at that time. He had had a career with American Express and so he could pretty much live anywhere he wanted. So um, we decided to take a journey and start looking around and we took a tour east and we looked at Charlottesville, Virginia and several other places and actually landed on Charlottesville and found a farm and moved there. So I took three years. And at that time I was, you know, doing consulting, but I was also on my, my son's school board. He was in a private, a friend's school at the time. So I was on the school board. I was on the board of Planned Parenthood. I was doing all these things. And I went to lunch with a friend one day and she was trying to get me to host a fundraiser for one of the charities that we were involved in. And she goes, you'd be perfect for this. You're the perfect socialite. I thought, oh my God, if this is what my epitaph is going to be, then I'm like the perfect socialite. I need to go find something else to do. And so I was telling my husband, I said, I've got to go back to work. And my son very quickly said, mom, you really do, because I can't take any more of you being at every social event, every school event. You really need to go back to work. That's amazing. Yeah, so I did. And I ended up uh, going to work for Oracle. And one of the things that they were getting ready to do, and you know, it's weird how worlds collide, but this was in 96. And Oracle was just then getting into the applications business. So I wrote the business plan for how they should go into the applications business. And they used that model. I went into their public sector division and started their applications, a sales division, and that incorporated government, education, health, uh, transportation, and uh, telecommunications. And so grew that from nothing and one person, me, uh, to $100 million in about a year and a half to two year period of time. It was very, it was very fast uh, growth. And then I 
was there for, I, I think I was there about five years when I um, got a call from Warburg Pincus and they are a um, private equity firm. And they had a company that they had acquired during 2001. So sort of during the dot-com boom mm-hmm. and had not done the due diligence that they wished they had done. So they were looking for a CEO to come in and clean up the business, um, get rid of a lot of the um, crazy assets that they had, such as the company Porsche and the company winery wow. and those kinds of things that occurred during the dot-com boom and help them get their money back. Mm-hmm. So I left Oracle. And I took the job with Evolve. And in one year, we got the company straightened up, cleaned up, new management team, downsized, got rid of the corporate headquarters, did all those things that were necessary to clean up the balance sheet, and then sold off the assets and took the liabilities through bankruptcy. So that was a pretty aggressive year. But you know, I learned a lot. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I learned a lot more about bankruptcy than I ever wanted to learn. But it... Um, you know, really helped me later on when I went to mm-hmm. HMH. But I, after leaving Evolve, I thought I'd retire and not do anything for a while and, and maybe consult. And then I got a call from Microsoft. And I ended up going to Microsoft to run their public sector business. And then I took over their global public sector business, which was about a $10 billion business, and ran that until I got the call to go to Evolve or to uh, HMH. Wow. So it's been quite a, um, quite a ride. And I've had so many great opportunities. And along the way, I've had the opportunity to work with so many amazing people, many of which I've worked with at multiple companies. I brought a lot of people with me from Oracle to Microsoft. And I brought several people from Oracle to Evolve, Evolve to Microsoft, and then Microsoft mm-hmm. to HMH. So I feel like I've had the opportunity to really work with a lot of dynamic people and people that are a lot smarter than I am. And, um, and which has you know, done helped me do well and helped us do well in the companies where we were. And then at HMH, when I got there, you know, obviously, Claudia, you know that Yeah, and story, it was amazing but, having an opportunity to work with you there and for you there. Yeah, it was, it was a wonderful experience. And um, it was the, one of the best five years I think I've ever had. And we took the company from literally when I arrived, we had to file for, to get rid of our covenants because we were going to break our covenants quickly took it through a pre-packed bankruptcy and then a year and a half later took it public. So I can't imagine ever having, you know, I had that kind of opportunity, but I did and it was wonderful and I learned a lot and I loved the people I work with and I loved uh, the experience. When you're ready to make a hire for your small business, you naturally want to find the best person for the job. And the odds are really good that the best person is on LinkedIn. Here are some things about LinkedIn I think you should know. LinkedIn Jobs makes it super easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. They use knowledge of hard skills and soft skills to match you with the people who fit your role the best. That means that your LinkedIn job matches are based on skills and background for sure, but also interests, activities, and passions. Matching lets you quickly get a group of the most relevant, qualified candidates for your role. That way you get to focus on the candidates you want to spend time talking to and make a quality hire you're excited about. People go to LinkedIn every single day to learn and advance their careers. 
So LinkedIn understands what they're interested in and what they're looking for, which means when you use LinkedIn jobs to hire someone, your matches are based on so much more than a resume. Customers rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires. Post a job today at linkedin.com forward slash 43% and you'll get $50 off your first job post. L-I-N-K-E-D-I-N dot com forward slash 43-P-E-R-C-E-N-T. That's linkedin.com forward slash 43% and you'll get $50 off today. The 43% is brought to you in part by Third Love. You know, I've struggled with bra straps that slip for my entire adult life. There's literally nothing worse than being in a meeting and feeling like you have to reach over to adjust your bra strap. That's why I'm super psyched to share my experience with Third Love. I recently went online and took their quiz to find my perfect bra size. I think the entire process took me less than one minute and it was surprisingly fun. In just a few days, I had my perfectly sized bra delivered to my door along with an alternate option. It also came in a super cute box with wrapping. It not only fits perfectly, but the straps stay just where they're supposed to now, which is on my shoulders. I cannot believe I waited this long to have a bra that actually fits right. This is hands down the most comfortable bra I've ever owned and there's no annoying tag label that itches either. Their lightweight, super thin memory foam cups actually mold to your shape, which is proprietary to Third Love. How cool is that? Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they are offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Simply go to thirdlove.com forward slash percent now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. What are you waiting for? That's T-H-I-R-D-L-O-V-E dot com forward slash P-E-R-C-E-N-T. You got to check it out. You've managed to put an incredible career into a few sound bites here, and it sounds like no one job that you took along the way was directly related or the same as the last one, but you were able to leverage your confidence and your skills and your ability to make each one a success. You know, what, how do you think it worked out? I mean, it does seem like everywhere you went, it's almost like you waved a magic wand and cleaned things up and got things where they need to be. Well, I'm glad I made it sound like that. It didn't seem like that at the time, but I've just been very fortunate. I have a lot of confidence that, you know, I can figure things out. And I do believe that companies are primarily the same. It's all about people. It's all about process. And it's all about making sure that you do a great job on customer service and that you do a great job working with your customers and putting them first. And so it doesn't matter what the company name is or what the logo on the door is. Those are sort of the same issues that you're dealing with every day. Mm -hmm. So if you think about that and you think about, okay, I'm at this company. What What am I selling? What's my product? What are my customers? What do they want? And how many great people can I bring on board to help me make that happen? And so that's one of the reasons I think I've leveraged the people that I've worked with because I know what they're capable of. Mm -hmm. We know how to work together. We all work as a team. And you, you can't think of yourself as 
you think of yourself as a leader, and, and of course you are because you're in that leadership role, but you also have to think of yourself as part of the team. And you have to make sure that you're working as hard as everybody else and that you're not expecting anyone to do any more than you're, than you're doing. And you have to give people the opportunity to fail. And you know, I have always known that I'm well capable of failing and I have failed, but I also believe I can figure it out and I have confidence that I will get that done. And so I don't think I've ever been prepared for the job I was going into. I think I've always just figured out that, you know, I've looked at the people that were there before and, you know, if they could do it, so could I. Yeah. And that's sort of how I've, I've thought about it. And I think if, you know, I always mentor young women. And when I do, I always tell them that if you wait until you're ready for the job, you'll never, you'll never move forward. You've got to take a leap of faith. And if the worst thing that happens to you is you get fired, you know what, you're going to be okay. And uh, I've experienced that myself. And guess what? I'm okay. And so that's a that's a good thing. That is amazing. And so when you took that time off to be with your son when he was in middle school, and he, then at some point you all realized it was time for you to go back, and it sounds like you <laughs> did too. Did, does he does he reflect on that now as an adult? You know, what did he think about those years where you really focused first on on the home for a while? You know, it's really interesting that you asked that because we were just talking about that, you know, last year when we were on a vacation and I didn't even realize this, but he was telling, he's told people many times that his mother gave up her career for him and that he was so proud of me when I went back to work and I was able to do well. And for the fact that I quit working at PeopleSoft, which was a dream mm -hmm. job, uh, in order to be able to you know, move east with my family and spend more time with him, to him was one of the greatest gifts I ever gave him. And, you know, and it, just, it, it kind of makes you just you know, tear up and, it, and it, it grabs you in your heart. But you realize it really, it, that's how he felt. And he was really, um, he was so happy about that. It really made him realize how much I love him. But then it also made him realize, you know, glad I love you, you know, glad you love me, mom. But you know what? Um, you love me maybe a little too much and maybe you need to, you know, let me kind of spread my wings. And so as he got older, he appreciated that time, but it was, re you know, he was ready to, to be on his own a little bit more. But the good thing about it is that we talk every day and he's about to be 40 years old. And we talk every day and he's just, you know, he's a great person. He has a wonderful wife and, and two kids of which I'm very close to. And we vacation together every year. And I'm very fortunate that he wants to be a part of my life. So that, that makes me feel really good. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, that's what we all are hoping for. I think that we end up raising kids that actually want to hang out with us. When we're... <laughs> that's where I am anyway. And so when you when you took the, that time and then you jumped back in with the the confidence that of course you could figure it out and had continued to have an amazing career after that, you know a lot of women I've talked to and I've heard it from a number of different people. In a lot of women, sometimes there's a confidence gap on coming back in, and it it makes it hard for them to think about what's possible for them. How do you talk to when you're mentoring younger women? How do you talk about that potential confidence gap that others have? I think one of the things that I was very fortunate with, um, and at the time, maybe I didn't think so, but when I first started off at Texas Instruments, as I said, I was really the only professional female. In fact, when I went out, there were very few female geophysicists. And when I went out on pregnancy leave, I was the first um, professional um, full-time person at Texas Instruments that had uh, 
gone out on on maternity leave. And so I actually went out on a full medical disability Mm. because they did not have a maternity um, program. And so I think the fact that I worked in such a male dominated environment, uh, I, I always had to just have confidence because it was, and this was back in the seventies. So if you think about the Mm -hmm. me too movement now, you can't even imagine what it was like back in the seventies. And so I think I had to find a lot of inner strength. And so when I'm talking to, to girls today, and when I'm doing either a talk or I'm you know, mentoring different people that I, that I work with, I talk to them about, you just have to find your core inner strength and you have to believe in yourself and you just cannot be afraid of failure because you are going to fail and you have to have the ability to say, okay, you know, pick myself back up and, and keep right on going. And I have that kind of attitude that, okay, if today is not a great day, tomorrow is going to be better. And you have to think like that because otherwise you will find yourself just wanting to crawl into a shell and you can't do that. And I, you know, I'd say the same thing for, for men too, but I think with women, it's even more challenging mm-hmm. because we are brought up to believe that we have to be perfect. And so if we are not perfect, we then feel like we are not capable. And I think that's a big, huge mistake that we that's, have to make sure I we think change that's incredibly in how we valuable. raise our daughters. And when you think about that advice for, for people who are coming back in, um, you know, one of the things I've been encountering recently, and I'd love your thoughts on it, is there seems to be a trend towards people asking more questions about what their career development path can look like and how they take the next step. And sometimes you can't really predict where, where your next job is going to be. And sometimes it's not like the military in the corporate world. Just because there's a level up, it doesn't mean that's your path, so to speak, just for being in the job. And so how have you talked to women at all or people in general about how to sort of be open to opportunities and create opportunities? Yes. In fact, when I was at Microsoft, Microsoft had quite an HR process that they went through um, where that you would map out your career and you would talk about your next steps and they would talk about your next steps and, you know, and kind of all of the above. And I also found that it was kind of very narrow in, in the path in that you were either on a technical track or you were on a an executive track. And if you went off your track and then it was hard to get back and maybe you, you know, were capping your career. And I used to push back on HR quite a bit on that. And I used to talk to the people that were on my team about that saying, you know, you have to decide where you want to be and, and what you want to do today and what looks interesting to you out there to do tomorrow. And maybe you can't map exactly how you're going to get there. And maybe that won't even be what it is, but you have to be open to other ideas that might come along that don't fit on that path. Because if you just, you know, go down this, you know, singular path all the time, you could leave out so many interesting things that you might, that you might find rewarding, or you might find that, that you're going to like better. And, and it's so hard in, in corporations where they, they sort of, you know, they think they're helping you by trying to line you up, but it's not, I think the best way for people to find the things that are really going to make them happy. And I'm hoping now that you're seeing a lot more workforce development efforts and you're seeing a lot more efforts to try to keep millennials because they come in for a couple of years and they leave. I'm hoping that that those trends towards trying to keep people on your workforce and find more things that are interesting to them that will help keep them there 
will help you know uh, companies realize that you have to give them more opportunities outside of the main path that might be you know might be really visible but may not be the right place for them to go. Obviously, in your career, you've been CEO. You're now on a board of directors for a major company. When you look back at your path, it, do you think it, it's you know how do you think you got there? Is it the, the, the variety of experiences that you had that made you qualified for those opportunities? Or was it one particular area that you think you had experiencing in, experience in that really made some of these opportunities possible? Because um, just to your point around there's you have to be open to opportunities and possibilities, it, it seems like you've had a really broad and interesting career path to get where you are too. And, and I never could have mapped this out. It's not something that I ever really could have thought about. It was just opportunities that came up. I hadn't planned on you know, going to Oracle and an opportunity came up. I got a phone call. And the next thing you know, I'm at Oracle. I hadn't planned on going to Evolve and a phone call came and I took the phone call. And it wasn't that I was unhappy where I was. It was just like, well, wow, this is kind of interesting. I think I can do this. And that CEO opportunity um, helped me then become a CEO again at HMH. The opportunity at Microsoft that, that again, was a phone call that I took and, and off I go to Microsoft was such a large group that I was running and such a broad expanse of working with governments all around the world on government, education, health, and you know national defense and intelligence. I had never had some of those experiences, and I definitely never worked with, you know, leaders of countries before and met with presidents of countries and sat at conferences with these, you know, outstanding leaders or sat at a table with Madeleine Albright. I had never done any of those things. And, you know, and, and so just to have that experience, I think helped me then have the confidence to be able to, when I took over HMH to know that I was more than capable of meeting with the kinds of people that I needed to meet with, whether they were investors and or superintendents and or authors, to be able to take that company forward. And then from that experience, I think it's helped me in my consulting because I, I feel confident that when I go into a company to work with them, that I've had a broad brush of experiences that I can bring to them. And sometimes you look at your own experiences, and you think, well, what can I really bring to the table? And then you sit down with people and you realize, well, you've done this, you've done this, you've talked to these people. And you really, you really do have a lot of things that you can share that, that add value. So um, it's just, you know, I've been very fortunate from that perspective. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people have not sat down with Madeline Albright. (laughs) (laughs) So can you share a little more about one of those experiences? Like how does one end up in a situation where you're sitting down with Madeline Albright? Well, I was just at a conference wow. and um, I was on a panel and she was on the same panel and it was uh, it was an uh, international rescue uh, organization and Microsoft was very involved with it. And so I was there representing Bill Gates and it's like, oh my God, I'm sitting on this panel with Madeleine Albright. I represented wow. Bill Gates at another event where I was sitting at the table with George Soros uh, and the president at the time of Liberia. I was sitting in Japan one time and I was with um, not the um, prime minister, but you know, one of his deputies right below him. And I got a call from my son. And one of the things that I always um, did was that when my son called, I took the call. It, it didn't matter where I was or what time it was. I took the call. And that was a standard thing that he knew and I knew. And I always took the call. 
And I actually told the minister, I said, I, I really hate to, and this is through interpreters. I said, I really hate to interrupt this, but my son is on the, the, the phone and I always take a call from my, from my children. And he just looked at me and smiled. So I stepped out of the room and took the call and I came back and I thought this is probably the most diplomatically horrible thing I've ever done. And I came back and through the interpreter, he said that he would love to work with me. And he was excited about this project because anyone that put their children first was someone that Japan could respect. And so, you know, it's interesting how, you know, you have these experiences and things that just, you know, you learn to, to not only have to step up because you're representing someone that is, you know, bigger than life, like Bill Gates, but you're also, you know, you're still a mother and you still have these values that you personally respect that you also have to make sure you bring to the table. And do you remember all these years later, what that call was that interrupted that meeting? Yeah, it was something very basic. Like he was going to something and was it okay? And (laughs) would I pay for the concert tickets or something? (laughs) It was some complete non-emergency and I about shot him when I got home. But that's really, I mean, those are, I mean, but he, if he called, I took the call, but it was always, he would call on very basic things like that. Like mom, I need money or mom, I want to go here. So that, is that okay? Those kinds of things. Very urgent to him, not so much to me. But that, I mean, that's a story in and of itself that I think so many people will appreciate hearing because myself included, I think so many of us, we, we immediately go to pick up the phone, obviously when your child calls, but there's always a, I always have a sense of anxiety. Like, you know, one, is this going to be an actual emergency? Like someone has cut themselves or, you know, fallen down. Um, but then I usually also feel some anxiety for the meeting that I'm in, that I'm being disruptive. I, I really don't know, Claudia. I just was so committed to, you know, I had a lot of guilt about being a working mother And I had a lot of guilt that I was traveling. And even though I had taken the time off, I was now back at work. I just always worried that I was not being a great mother. I mean, my own mother Mm -hmm. never worked and my grandmother never worked. And I came from a family that, that, you know, women didn't work. And so I was sort of the first in my family. And I, I just had a lot of guilt about that. And so I, it was kind of my own way, I think, of trying to make me feel better it was really funny. Um, it kind of became a joke at Microsoft and I didn't even realize it at the time, but until someone pointed it out, but it seemed like in my group and I had at the time, probably 2,500 people in the organization, but it became kind of a joke that we had so many women in my organization that were going out on maternity leave. And, and we had so many women and I didn't really think about it until someone pointed out that don't you realize that all the women mm-hmm. that are that are having families want to work in your organization because you understand and you don't get upset. Do you do you realize that? And I didn't, and I I just didn't even think about it because I if someone said they couldn't come home or come in because they had to stay home with their children, I'm like, fine, work at home. And it never was a problem for me, and because I'd been through that myself. And it was funny that so many women migrated to my team because of that, so they felt like they had a safe harbor. Oh, I mean, I know I felt that way when I was at HMH under your leadership because I had been in tech since I had started out in my career, you know, and had always been in still male dominated industries. And HMH was really my first experience feeling like, one, there were a lot of women leaders there. And so I felt like I had 
people I could look up to who, who had been there, done that. Um, and I, I felt that you created an environment where it was a non-issue. So I'm always appreciative of that and hoping I can emulate it on teams I'm a part of now. I think that's one of the things that I was most happy about at HMH and that I think that coming out of a tech environment where, you know, I lived on the East Coast and worked for Microsoft on the West Coast and traveled back and forth and had a corporate apartment and those types of things. But I never left my my East Coast hub and never left my family. And I always thought that Microsoft was extremely good about people working at home. And, you know, we're a technology company, so leverage the technology. My assistant and I never lived in the same city for the entire time I worked there. And it was just one of those things where we made it work and people didn't even realize we weren't in the same place. And at HMH, you know, coming into an, a publishing company that was, you know, kind of stayed and, and old school, they were not used to that. And so that was something that I, I thought we brought to the table. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I think they reversed that trend. But uh, at the time, I thought it was the right thing to do. And I don't think we lost any productivity because of it. Right now, I work for a company that has, they don't even refer to it as remote work. They refer to it as a distributed team. And I feel like people are actually incredibly productive because in some ways, you know, when you do have those days where you're, you don't have to commute or you're not stressed about pick up or drop off, but in some ways you end up working more hours and doing more for, for the overall goal. So I see it working in a lot of places. And I, I know it was working there when you were there. So it was amazing. If you were going back in time, back when you were at, you know, getting as a geophysicist, what advice would you give your younger self or what, you know, what, is there anything that you would do differently or anything that you would give yourself uh, advice on now? Well, that's hard to say. I think um, the biggest thing would be to enjoy the moment more. I was so anxious about doing a good job and because of what I was doing and because you know in those days you know you had these big mainframe computers that you were working on and the best time to get computer time when you weren't interrupted and you didn't have to fight for your for your sessions was the middle of the night so the number of times that I went into work at 10 o'clock at night and came home at four in the morning and then turned around you know showered had breakfast said hello to my husband and then you know ran out the door again uh, were a lot. I was so driven to to excel, and and that's just something. Again, I think, you know, as maybe it's a female thing. I don't know. I mean, my husband was never doing that, and he was excelling. So I don't know. I don't know why that was happening. But it's just one of those things that I I just wish I had enjoyed the moment. And when I was at Microsoft, and I was traveling all over the world. I had people I was working with, and they would say, "Okay, I'm going to spend the weekend, and I'm going to take a side trip and do this, or I'm going to take a side trip and do that." And I never did that. I always went home because of my family. But sometimes I wish I had you know, maybe occasionally done something like that and maybe just enjoyed the moment. Mm. And do you have any routines? I mean, again, you're someone that we a lot of us look up to. And now in where you are today and working on boards and running your consulting company, do you have any routines for your morning or your nighttime rituals that fuel your happiness right now? I do. I have two dogs, two very large Labradors, uh, three years old and two years old. And so um, we get up every morning at 5.30 and we take a walk. And we walk for about 45 minutes and I have about 40 acres. So we walk around the property and we do our morning walk and we come back and we have coffee and watch the news and and I read the paper online. And then normally I'm, I'm working by eight o'clock but I'm, uh, I love that morning routine. I've always been a morning person. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I like to, I stay up late too, but I'm, I'm always been a morning person and I really enjoy that time before the sun comes up and we walk with the flashlight and out we go. Wow. And, and some mornings it's, it's incredible because the sky will be so clear and all the constellations are out. It's, you know, and the sun's not up yet. The light's not up yet. Nothing. And it's totally quiet. It's just me and the dogs. And I really enjoy that. Oh, that sounds that sounds perfect. I, th- to me, there's nothing better than getting up, but while everything is still quiet and just getting a moment to reflect on the day, but being able to do it with your dogs on 40 acres sounds pretty amazing as well. Um, it is. Well, Linda, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, to share your experiences and some advice for younger women um, or, and men who are contemplating a lot of different choices around family and career right now. Is there anything that you'd like to add before we hop off? No, other than it's been really nice to reconnect with you. And I'm, I'm so glad that you're doing these podcasts. I think that's wonderful. Thanks, Linda. Thanks so much. I really appreciate the time. That's it for this time, but we'll be back next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring woman. If you could take just a minute to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to hear these stories. The 43% is produced by me, Claudia Reuter, with additional help from the team at Critical Frequency. Our executive producer is Amy Westervelt. Episodes are mixed by Tyler Morissette, and our music is from Martin Wisenberg. You can find The 43% wherever you listen to podcasts, on our website at the43percent.com, or at criticalfrequency.org. Thanks again for listening and have an awesome week.